Okay, we're in Amos chapter 3. And we're looking at this book. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study together. Father, we're looking at your word. And through your word, we're looking at you and your power and your glory, your holiness and your grace. And Father, we just pray that uh, you would help us to grasp the human condition and all of its wickedness and fallenness. And then your great power to judge mankind. And Father, we pray that there we would see also how much we need a Savior, how much we need to examine ourselves and know where we stand with you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, one of the great truths about God um, is that he does not show partiality. You know what I mean by partiality? That he doesn't give more attention or favor to people because they're rich, or they're highborn, or they're powerful, or they're famous. If you read an old sermon, they don't talk about being famous like that's important because nobody cared about that. But in the since the 20, about 100 years ago on to now, being famous is the thing people desire among above almost many other things, even above riches sometimes. So we have to include that because they get shown partiality, people just for being famous, right? If you're a TikTok sensation, you're famous and you're really important. God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care how many magazine covers you appear on. He doesn't care about how much money you have. Um, nothing impresses him like that. Fame, money, power, not even a little bit. He's not impressed, not impressed. Um, anything you can do, he can do better, as the old song <laughs> says. Mm. Maybe we should make a hymn out of that song. <laughs> anything you can do, God can do better, and infinitely so. Everything that we d delight in or honor in this world is extraordinarily temporary and short-lived. So whether it's fame, money, or power, it doesn't matter. In Job uh, 34, 19, Elihu, uh, near the end of the book, correctly says about God, he says, he shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Wise men know that all human beings are of equal value before God made in his image and that God doesn't show partiality to any because of what they achieve or what their condition is in life. Human beings are impressed with things like money and power and fame and beauty, things like that. They, they, we tend to defer to people like that, perhaps hoping for a favor, right? A job or um, a rank or a court case, or a gift, or an autograph, or a smile from a pretty girl, or whatever the thing is. We, we, we want something from them. We, we are partial towards them. God is not partial. The sins of the rich um, are not diminished by their wealth, because God doesn't care how much money they have. The sins of the highborn, in fact, in fact you have to drop that off the list, because in, in our culture, we don't care how you're born, right? We really don't. I mean, there's not like a, used to be though, the, the nobles and everybody else. You, were, you had this lineage, this noble lineage, and that set you above people. Most of Western civilization was based on that principle until something happened here in America that changed all of that. But, um, so we don't regard that. But for centuries people did. If you were high born, you were a superior being to your servants or the lowly people, the hoi polloi, as the Greek would say, means uh, the many, the, the people. God is not impressed with that. 
Deuteronomy 10:17, Moses told Israel, the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. What are you going to offer God that he doesn't have? <laughs> <laughs> and so that quality in God is, is to be emulated by us, his people, since, and since the law of God is an expression of his character, he, he puts that into law that we should be like him in these matters. matters. Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. There's actually a movement in our culture now to show partiality in all kinds of different ways. But equality before the law for everyone is absolutely essential because God sees the worth and dignity of all people equally. That's why. And his law reflects that great truth. Here's another one. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. doesn't matter. You don't judge against them because they're rich and you don't judge against them because they're poor. You treat everybody fairly. Now even in New Testament times, which had a very different culture from the Old Testament culture, but there was slavery in that, in that pagan world, and even people that were Christians that lived under pagan law, when slaves had no legal protection, they had a lot of legal protection in the Old Testament, but not in a Roman world. They didn't have a lot of legal protection at all, almost nothing. And Paul warns Christian masters in Ephesians 6-9, masters give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So God is not partial to the owner or the owned either. They're both equal in dignity before him. So don't think you're above your servants is what Paul is saying. God is not partial to the world's evaluation of men on any level. Whatever it is that we think makes people better than other people or higher or something or worthy of our attention more, it doesn't impress God. He's not partial that way. And all of that's really important because the perversion of justice is an incredibly great sin. It really is. Deferring to the rich or the well-born or the powerful in courtrooms or in lawmaking assemblies where policies are made and, and uh, decisions are made, that's a crime against heaven if you show partiality with regard to those things. The very definition of justice is that no, no one is to be preferred over another in law. That said, so we're looking at the prophecies of Amos here, prophecies given to an apostate people, the nation of Israel, and the prophet's been sent from God to these prosperous but wicked people in the kingdom of Israel to tell them they'd better repent of their manifold sins and corruptions or they will face judgment. So last week we stopped at verse 12 of Amos chapter 3 and now we're going to move on and God's going to get much more specific about the judgments that are coming. The judgments are not going to be a tap on the shoulder like excuse me you're doing wrong please listen. It's not going to be like that. Uh, we will see next week in chapter 4 that God has made numerous moves to give very hard taps on the shoulder to Israel to get their attention and they don't care. We'll see that next time. Because for the elite class things are going well. They can rise above most of the problems that God sends to nations to tell them you're not doing well and you need to repent. But they were, they were fine. They were fine. 
So right now when we get to chapter 11, chapter 3 verse 11 it gets a little more direct. Therefore thus says the Lord God, the enemy, evil ones surrounding the land will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. So that means their great cities are going to be broken into and despoiled. It means that. And it gets worse than that as the prophet's words continue and he describes what's going to happen. But that is very clear. And the Lord is telling them that they're very comfortable right now but their lives are going to be dramatically changed. Like dramatically changed in a not good way. The powerful won't have power anymore. Their riches will be gone and they will suffer greatly. And the reason is clear and we can start um, in that too with verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. So we're starting with that. So he says in verse 13, hear and testify. That harkens back to verse 9 of chapter 3 where God invited, remember he invited the Philistines and Ashdod and he invited the Egyptians to come and gather on the mountains that are around where Samaria sits which is also on a, a hill, a tall hill and to watch what he's going to do to them. So come on Egypt, come on Philistines, come and see what I'm going to do to Israel, my people. But the key line in verse 14 right now is I will also punish the altars of Bethel because that was one of their greatest sins. So we've mentioned Bethel before. It, uh, here it comes to the fore as one of their key sins. It's the first thing really God addresses right there. So Bethel has a wonderful background but it, at this time in history it was, a, it was a monstrous thing. It was the center of their idolatry. We've mentioned it a couple of times but an, an idol, an idol in the nation that God planted for himself, that's what they were doing. Idolatry is the greatest sin for obvious reasons. It's one reason God said David was a man after his own heart. Even though David had some pretty bad sins, he was never an idolater. Never an idolater. It's a sin against infinite goodness to worship idols. And the one who defines goodness himself, which is God himself of course, to worship idols is to take away from who God is. So once a person or a people turn to idols, well what always happens is morality becomes a free-for-all always and humans end up doing really horrible things and there's nothing to check those things and that's one of the big problems with it from a human point of view it's obviously any idol any worshiping of idols or putting idols before God is an offense against him but just in the human sense what's what's the check on our sin if we don't listen to him anymore and we're worshiping something else there's no check because idols idols will give you exactly what you want in terms of your behavior they don't, they don't stop you from doing evil. So Bethel is where the first king of Israel set up a golden calf for the people of the northern kingdom to worship at. We've talked about it. It's a special place because Bethel is where Jacob had his famous dream, the latter, the latter dream, right? And, he, and uh, was, there was a village there called Luz, Luz and Jacob gave it a new name. He called it Bethel, the house of God. So it was a wonderful part of Israel's history. 
And, and it was at that very place when he had that dream that God ratified for him personally the Abrahamic covenant. So God gave Abraham the covenant. He ratified it to Isaac in very specific words. And that's where he gave it to Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's where we get the patriarch's names. And so that was a super wonderful and special place. A sacred place in the history of Israel. But politics is more important, you know, than God. You know that, right? So Israelite kings, after, the, after Solomon, the kingdom split. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The Israelite kings set up an idol to lure God's people away from Jerusalem. And it talks about it in 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm going to read that whole story for you. It's, it's not real long, but it tells you exactly what the motives were and what they were doing there. So they dared to set up an alternative worship site to the one that God ordained. So the first Kings chapter 12 verse 26. So Jeroboam is the first king of the northern kingdom. It says Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. That's Jerusalem, right? If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam the king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam the king of Judah. So if they all go to worship in where Jerusalem is in the kingdom of Judah, he says, they, they'll start to hate me because they'll realize that I'm not there. You know, so we've got to do something about that. So verse 28, so the king consulted, and obviously he got some really bad advice because it says, and he made two golden calves, and he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. So these calves are exactly what Israel was saying when Aaron built that stupid calf back in Exodus, saying, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. This is your redeemer God. So that's what he's telling them. Um, then verse 29, he set one in Bethel and he put the other one in Dan. Dan is way up north to draw people in that direction. Verse 30, now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan and he made houses on high places. That's other altars and shrines, pagan ones. He did that too. And made priests from among all the people who were not sons of Israel, the sons of Levi like God had commanded. Verse 32, Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month in which he had devised his own devised in his own heart. See, this is a human-created religious system. It's not from God. It's a man-made religion. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. So he literally made up his own religion. Using bits and pieces of the true one. Of course. That's what all false religions tend to do. So, with all the care that God took and if you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy um, this really precise form of worship in a certain place so Moses gave all this super detailed direction to the Israelites God said not to deviate in any way from this God given practice of their faith so the manner of doing it the time of doing it the order of worship all of that stuff was designed by God 
And Jeroboam, it just makes up his own religion. Now, I think we can say if there's no God, it doesn't matter if you make up your own religion. Who's offended? But if there is a God, and if he's communicated very clearly, there's a solemn obligation to listen and to do exactly as he says. If you look at the last chapter of Exodus, it says Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded. It says that multiple times. God said to do this, and Moses did that exactly as the Lord commanded. Exactly, and this guy's making up his own religion. Because of politics. Did you notice that when I was reading this story? He's worried about his political situation. So he's going to create an idolatrous system for his country. That's pretty evil. God actually is supposed to come before other things. Other things are supposed to follow after we're faithful to him. God before self. God before luxury. So he says about Bethel in verse 14 back in Amos 3 again. He says, for on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. Altars had horns on the corner, even the one that was made for the tabernacle to tie the sacrifices onto if you needed to do that. And the altar Moses made had that. That's God's design. But the altar at Bethel, he says, will be broken. Sacrifices there are going to come to an end. Um, and it's not that far away historically. It's a generation away, maybe less than a generation. So it kind of depends on maybe 30 years after he's saying this. It's going to happen. So that's their religion. Then the subject changes to their wealth and their beautiful houses. Verse 15. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish. And the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. So that's getting, so, oh, well, you, you're going to break up the altar up there? Okay, what? well, no, I'm going for your houses too, you rich people. So notice they have summer houses and winter's houses. You know, Israel is actually geographically a lot like Acton. It really is. It's, it's pretty dry. It's got rainy seasons, but it's pretty hot in the summer and pretty cold in the winter. Freeman was telling me it's like 62 is like really cold in Fiji. So <laughs> that's like the low, that's like the low, the low thing there. That's, that's why people want to live there. But um, so they would have summer houses and winter houses like, you know, like snowbirds and people that live in Minnesota or whatever. They get houses in the south and all that kind of stuff. They did all that too. And ivory, man, you know, we've, archaeologists have found a lot of beautiful ivory that was inlaid in homes and furniture and all that kind of stuff. They love that. But the rich people are doing just great here. So they maintained multiple homes uh, to fit their little climate situations there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Unless you're a mob boss or a Russian oligarch perhaps <laughs> or some such person. In other words, they didn't get their wealth by legitimate means. They got their wealth through oppression like Russian oligarchs do. So the elite class in Israel were wealthy but by what we would consider Ill illegalities. They oppressed other people. They misused the law and they used their power to influence the keepers of justice to bend the law in their favor so they could make more money. And, no, and they didn't have any fears because if you can bribe the judges or offer them gifts or get on, they're, on, you know, they're your buddies or whatever, then they're always going to rule in your favor. Most of the world runs like that. It actually does run like that. And historically, most societies have been run like that. True justice is a very difficult thing to maintain because money and power gravitate to each other. 
So it was a crony relationship situation and the poor didn't have any recourse. But as long as they were living high they didn't care. And God absolutely hates that. God hates that. And we see the same attitude today. Um, there's all kinds of ways it shows up. You remember that story about the, 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 lady, the lady and her husband that got their kid in college? By paying, this, paying the people at the college and you know that's, that's just a really simple little sort of example of that kind of thing. And she, got, she went to jail for like two whole months <laughs> for that. Or the TV minister, you know, the, the charlatan guys on TV that are stealing people's money, promising them the things that they can't possibly promise and which most people never get. That kind of thing, you know. Send in your prayers and uh, we'll be praying over them in a big bundle as, as soon as we throw them in the garbage bin. I mean, that's what, that's what literally happens. They've actually caught people doing that kind of a thing. Well, it's the rich and the well-connected and people with influence influence over leaders, influence over judges, influence over the courts. Very often they live very comfortable lives and are completely unconcerned about the condition of the people they're stealing from. That's how they operate. And they're unconcerned with getting in trouble because they know they're not going to get in trouble. As long as whoever their patron is is doing okay, they're doing okay. So they have ties to those who decide guilt or innocence. We call that corruption. But in most societies that's the norm. That's how things simply operate. And that's just true all the way down the line. Always been that way. Because human beings are fundamentally evil and corrupt. So it's very hard to be just. Very hard. Now you know the weak and the powerless might benefit in some ways from some of that kind of thing. But it's still not justice. Because if you are under the right patron he might let a little bit of nice things fall down to you. He might do that for you. But do you have the right to earn it on your own or succeed on your own in an equal system? No. He makes sure that doesn't happen. Now in democracies we pretend to be defenders of the common man but you see exactly the same thing happen in democracies. The money goes to the powerful and laws are made for their favor and not the common man. You, you always ask why aren't things better? Why don't things get better? Because those kind of influences are always there. Jesus understood this. That's why he said the poor you will always have with you because it will always be an unjust system. Nobody's going to fix that. We try. We try. We work hard. Sometimes some things get a little better and then it all just starts getting twisted again. That's just normal. So what Amos tells the elites in Israel in verse 15 is that their great houses, all that they have built and achieved is going to come to an end because it wasn't done honestly. So on top of that it was done while they were defying God. So chapter 4 of Hosea turns our attention to the ladies of Samaria. So let's talk about the ladies for a minute. Now the Lord calls them cows. <laughs> because they're not behaving like ladies. And the normal compassion that women feel for the hurting is completely suppressed amongst these ladies, these elite ladies because of their greed. It suppresses, it tears down their normal compassion. Little people are to be used for comfort or for decadent pleasures or whatever. And it turns out that, it turns out that women are sinners too. I was shocked when I first found that out. <laughs> but they can be devoid of justice just like men. 
So men are usually the ones held accountable here, but here the women are included as uh, in a brief section here. So verse 1 of chapter 4, hear this word you cows of Bashan. He would be canceled right away for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Who are on the mountain of Samaria, that's the capital city of northern kingdom, who oppress the poor, see that's specifically what they're in trouble for, and crush the needy, saying to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So they're party girls and that's all they care about. And if they kick some slaves around and mistreat people or steal from people, they don't care. Now he doesn't call them any old cows. They're cows of Bashan. Bashan is like where the best cows come from. These are elite cows. They are top brand cows. So these ladies were the choice women such as rich men choose for themselves, the most beautiful, the most this or that. And he calls them cows because they were not what God created human beings to be. These ladies are self-indulgent, superficial, unthinking, useless women. Obsessed with trivial, unimportant things. That's why he calls them cows. Because, you know, women, women are the civilizers usually. They, they shape cultures. A wise theologian once said, women are the trendsetters, the final guardians of morals fashions and standards and if women go off track everything goes off track because they usually know enough to keep men honest. (laughs) So these three participial phrases you see here tell you everything you need to know about them. They oppress the poor, they crush the needy, they say to their husbands bring, they just want more, bring that we may drink. So when the majority of women become decadent a society is done. That's kind of the end. There's no voice of compassion left. No mother instinct left. So Isaiah, Isaiah who was a generation later than Amos, he actually lived through the fall of this kingdom, the northern kingdom. He was, he was in the south but he prophesied to both Judah and Israel. But what he says to the women of Judah is the same thing. In Amos, I mean in Isaiah chapter 3 verse 16 there's a a much longer section about their females. I'm going to read that for you. This is Isaiah 3.16. Moreover the Lord said, now he's talking about the southern kingdom now but it's the same attitude. Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with their heads held held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps, the tinkle tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. And in that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans and veils. These are classy gals. (laughs) It will come about that instead of sweet perfume there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well set hair, a plucked out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn and deserted she will sit on the ground. 
That's what Amos is telling the elite women of Israel. It's the same message. Judgment is coming. It's going to be completely devastating. Now the Lord can protect them, but they've abandoned the Lord. So he will withdraw his protection. In fact, in scripture, he actually calls these other kingdoms to come and do their destructive work. He'll punish them later, but right now they're going to be a tool to punish his people who have so turned against him. So their shallow, self-indulgent lives will be just stripped away and those who survive will be carried off into brutal captivity. That happened to Israel and later it happened to Judah. It's the exact same thing. So Amos 4.2 begins with these words. The Lord has sworn by his holiness. So what is coming is based on the holiness of God. What does that mean? That he has burning, uncompromising passion for what is good and just and right. And we've talked about God's impartiality. That's a really important part of who God is. But if we're to be as true to him as he's revealed himself, in our minds we have to combine impartiality with his other attribute of holiness. Now he has many attributes. Those are two important ones with regard to judgment. So God is impartial. He doesn't favor the rich or the famous or the beautiful or anything like that. But he's holy and that's the the root of his judgment. One thing that means is that he absolutely hates evil. That God is holy means he hates evil. He loves good and he hates evil. And if you feel indignation in your heart towards evil, I think the whole world is sort of feeling that right now, this destruction of people that are just standing around trying to enjoy their normal human life, right? When we, when we see that, we feel indignation towards all of that, then, then you have a, a sense of what God feels towards evil that humans do. Now we can misjudge because we have a tendency to be partial because our perspective is very limited and we are sinners ourselves so we have to be careful about how we make judgments about things like that and who we're mad at and why and are we being fair and all of those kind of stuff. We have to really think that through because it's easy for us to go off track really easy because we're sinful ourselves. But the Lord he sees everything with perfect clarity. He doesn't make any mistakes about judgment. He never has to think oh am I going to, am I being unfair? No, he's just pure, infinite knowledge. He sees deep into every human heart. He sees motives. He sees desires. He sees the intention of our hearts. He sees our affections, the things we love and care about. He knows what those are. He knows all about them. So what the heart loves tells us the most about a person and God sees, he sees every love of wickedness in us. He sees human pride that vaunts itself and raises itself up above others. He sees whether or not people love what is good and right and true. So here in Amos he sees hearts that don't care about people on a lower social scale. They don't care anything about them. Psalm 11.5 says the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Psalm 5.5 says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. So the prophet Hosea 
followed Amos as a prophet to Israel. So there was Amos and Hosea kind of took over for him when his period ended. And they may have known each other, but they were definitely uh, prophesying to the same people. And God says in Hosea 9.15 about Israel, the wicked Israelites, just a little bit after Amos's time, all their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. That's pretty clear about how God feels. Gilgal is another place where they worshipped idols in Israel. That was, those were pagan idols, just pure pagan idols. So he set up the golden calves and he said, this is the God that brought you out of Israel. You can call him Yahweh or whatever you want. There were other places where they worshipped and Gilgal was another one. That's where probably the grossest sort of idolatry we talked about last time goes. And he says, he, God says, I came to hate them there for what they were doing. So God has a, a pure hatred, a holy hatred for the wickedness of his people here and their love for sin. They love sin. Now we of Christians are also to be haters of evil. Now God has the right to put that hatred on people, identify people and punish them. We don't have that right because we're ambassadors of Christ and Christ is the Redeemer. And so we are, we are the hand of mercy to people. We are the, the voice of God's grace and offers of forgiveness. We're not good enough to be the judgment people on, on the world, right? We're not supposed to clobber people for doing sins and all those kind of things. Because we, we're wicked ourselves. And, and what did God do with us? He saved us by his love and this incredible grace that he has, this free gift of salvation that we have. So we, we are to share that love and we're supposed to leave judgment to him. Scripture says that very clearly. Let God take revenge. So in verse 2 and 3 of Amos here, for God swears by his holiness, and then let's keep going. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord. So hooks and breaches, that sounds like some kind of a lady's garment. But um, the walls of Samaria uh, were their strength, and a breach is a break in the wall. Remember Henry V, uh, once more unto the breach, dear friends, so you break down the wall, then you got to charge through the wall and kill everybody. And that's... that's uh, that's what he's talking about here, breaches in the walls. And the Assyrians were masters of wall pulling downs. They're the guys that invented siege engines, the big, the big things. You swing them against the wall and they had big iron points on them and they broke the bricks down. And then they, they painted pictures of themselves and carved pictures of themselves breaking cities down all the time. They invented that. The great Usually you had to wait. Wait till they starve out. But they, they didn't wait. They didn't like to wait. So they broke things down. So the, the breach would be made in the wall. They'd go in, slaughter everybody, enslave everybody else, and carry them out. And they, and they also made pictures of themselves, of their captives, with rings and hooks put through their faces, through their, through their lips or through their nose. And they would tie them together and just take them along in a string of people being pulled along like that. Usually stripped of their clothing and everything else. So that's how they're going to go out, these wonderful cows of Bashan, these elegant ladies who love to drink and party and have a good time and didn't care about 
anything righteous or good. They're going to go out through the walls with hooks through them. So they will be at the mercy of a merciless people. And the Assyrians were completely merciless. Because they don't have mercy. And they don't have justice. And they don't care for the afflicted. So these fine, pampered, heavy drinking ladies of Israel will be taken out with hooks. At the very best they'll be slaves from now on for the rest of their lives. And since God sees their hearts, he invites them at this stage where Amos is preaching, he's in, he invites them to keep doing what they're doing. He says, go ahead. Verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress. Come there and sin. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgression because the worship there was even more perverted. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. P publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride, arrogance, and the evil way. Israel loved evil and they were very proud. Pride, pride is the thing that makes correction impossible. You can't correct yourself if you're proud. You won't listen. It closes out the possibility of true repentance and changing your life. So the Lord is very patient. He's very patient but he has limits. He'll wait hundreds of years to bring judgment on these people. He just lets them in fact, he, he has an expression in the Old Testament, fill up the measure of your sins. Just keep going. That's why he's telling them, come. Go ahead, come to Bethel, come to Gilgal. Commit all your transgressions. But that is what's coming, just so you know. People turn from him. They oppress their brothers. They worship things they made up so they can defy their creator. And these aren't ignorant pagans. These are the children of Abraham, redeemed from slavery by mighty acts of God. And now they think they're told a golden calf brought them out of slavery and they're, yeah, okay. Even though they know better. And they know exactly what they're rejecting. They know exactly who they are rejecting. And if you want to understand why Jesus came, you just look at Israel. They had every advantage a human being could ever ask for and they threw it away. And they're not unique. They're not, they're not a special kind of evil. Never think that the Israelites were a special kind of evil. They're typical human beings. Israel is humanity. They represent humanity. Israel is us apart from God's saving grace. So God sent his son to bear our sin because we could never be righteous without him. We're not better than they were. He had to bear the weight of all the sin all the evil in all the lands of every people in all of history. He had to bear all of that on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who takes away the sin of the world. That means there's salvation for everybody that wants it. But for those who reject, God swears by His holiness, His perfect goodness, that judgment is coming. One pastor said it like this, throughout eternity the lost soul will be testifying to this truth, God is holy and I was a sinner. 
I rejected his salvation. I turned my back on the gospel. I despised his son. I hated God himself. I lived in my sins. I loved my sins. I died in my sins. And now I am lost. To all eternity, I am lost. And God is righteous in my condemnation. He's right. People ha- I think people are planning to say all kinds of things when they stand before the Lord. The Bible says their mouths will be shut. They won't have anything to say. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. And he will do it. If we come to him and surrender ourselves to him. Because he's great and good and merciful and full of compassion. Let's pray. Lord, we who know you, we love your holiness. We love your pure and uncompromising purity, but we're most grateful that you love us beyond our understanding, that you suffered our punishment as an all-sufficient sacrifice for our many sins. Who is more worthy of our love than you? What thing, what treasure is more worthy of our love than you? Keep close to our hearts. Let us remember your love for us every day so we may live worthy of it and be that light that people need to see Jesus. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.